Welcome to the New Note. I'm your host, Vaughn Nkosi, coming to you by way of the Institute for Local Innovations. The following podcast is my conversation with my colleague, Bola, visiting Atlanta from the UK during his last weekend in Atlanta, which also happened to be Father's Day weekend. So, Bola, let's get started. Please introduce yourself. Bon Avisod, London-based charter surveyor for my sins. So explain that for for listeners who don't understand charter surveyor. Okay, so um, a huge love and affection for the construction process. Mm -hmm. Um, Trained essentially in construction management, construction technology, contract law, finance, and contract negotiation which is overarching, but you know, all of those different individual subjects that, that, that converge to give you that grounding to be trained as a quantity surveyor. And I studied quantity surveying at university in 1991, graduated in 94, spent five years in the corporate world, experiencing a number of things that clearly molded me into the man I am today. I became qualified in 99. I left the corporate world and that's where Ebola began to be the man he is today. So why don't we start there, going into that corporate space, lessons learned, give for the next generation leaders where you came from, where you are, what did you experience there that threw you out here into this new note of, okay, I'm not doing the nine to five job, I'm doing something else. If I go back to before I went to university, born and raised in East London in Hackney, Working class background, Nigerian parents. So what is Hackney? Give us the context. Okay, so if you think of Hackney in East London, you can probably equate it to Detroit, Michigan today in 2018 in terms of what has happened to Detroit as we know it today compared to what it was 30, 40 years ago. 30, 40 years ago, Hackney was rife with poverty. It was one of the most deprived wards in London. And it was constantly referenced as one of the most deprived wards across Europe. Mm. But that said, that's where I was living, that's where I was born and raised. And I never felt poor as a youngster. My parents did a commendable job in terms of bringing myself and my siblings up, and there were four others. My father made the point about education. He wasn't mixing words, he said it very clearly, if you want to exist outside of this environment, education is the key. Mm. And it was that simple. It was just difficult. It was difficult to study. It was difficult to to be committed to study because you're living in an environment where the temptation to fall foul of the system is in your face every day. Mm. So discipline, African discipline, mm-hmm. eye in hand, <laughs> <laughs> it's what it took. <laughs> uh-huh. Mom and dad? <laughs> Mom more than dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's, um, that kept me grounded. Mm-hmm. I, I am eternally grateful because all of that gave me the hunger to want to do more, yeah. to want to do better. Mm-hmm. And I, there was no free lunch. There was no silver spoon. There was no other way other than hard work. I started working I started jobbing at the age of like nine, ten. I, I, I perfected the art 
of washing cars. <laughs> you switch from working to jobbing. Is jobbing a UK term? Correct. It's freestyle entrepreneur with no contract, no links. You just have a go. If it works, it works. You get paid. If it doesn't, you walk away. Mm. Maybe with a bullet, maybe not, but you walk away. My view was I love cars. Always have. Okay. Had a massive car collection and I love to wash cars, mostly my father's, but then it became other people in the area. So that's how I made money. That bug of earning has stayed with me ever since. You are listening to The New Note. This is where we talk with transformational, next generation, mid-career, bridge, encore, and emeritus entrepreneurs. Before you get to, to university, Give folks some lessons learned from that grade school years to age 17, 18. I didn't realize the extent of my own gift until I began to get challenged at school to Mm. do better. Who challenged you? Most of my teachers. And most of my teachers were white or Jewish. The head teacher was black. I went to a high school that was converting from one phase of teaching Mm -hmm. into another phase of teaching and we were the first year of this new process. Nobody was sure it would work, but it was an all-boys school and we were the first year of this process, Homerton House. Is it still exist? It was demolished. I remember seeing the building boarded up, Mm. getting ready for demolition Mm -hmm. because I knew it was coming down and it was such an emotional thing for me because that was where I started in school. It's now an academy. But for me, what defined me in that school was being challenged to do better. Thinking that you're doing the best you can and somebody else looking at you and saying, no, we see more. You need to try harder. Mm. You hear it from your parents, (laughs) you have one understanding. You hear it from your teachers, you have another understanding. And then when the two of them get together, you get help. So, little did I know, they were pulling out my straight A capability, which they did and did well. And that's what defined me at school. And I was a bit of a rascal. <laughs> I wasn't an angel. So, so I got into trouble and, you know, the odd fight here and there. And, but I was a straight A student. And, I, and that, that, that is what allowed me to never underestimate my education. Mm. That whole piece about not really knowing yourself until you challenge yourself. And sometimes you're forced to challenge yourself by people that you either don't like or don't respect. But if they can convince you that they were right because your results speak for themselves, then you need to, as I did, I started thinking differently. I started thinking, well, actually, if I'm that good, Maybe there's something I need to explore. And it's been with me ever since. I'm a man of excellence. I want excellence in education. I want excellence in everything I do. Clearly, meeting you a couple of years ago, I definitely got that, which is what I appreciate about you. <laughs> and still appreciate about you. I wanna I wanna jump back to the rascal thing. Hmm. <laughs> Most people do. Yeah, yeah. I think so many kids think get in trouble, I'm getting sent to detention, but whatever That's it right. is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people always say, you're so smart if you just tried harder, but you don't apply yourself. Yeah. And I told you a few minutes ago, when I was on that road trip, and street signs are 
going by. And it seemed like a simple thing, but I'm like, Pop, thanks for teaching me how to read and write. I mean, it was just a little thing that, so growing up in New York, young innocent kids, we had like five square blocks that we would run around 97th Amsterdam, Columbus. As we got older towards teenagedom, the boredom, you're looking for more adventure, you're looking for more something to keep you more interested, riding a bike and riding a skateboard and stuff was getting boring. Two kids started Jumping turnstiles. Right. You know, in the subway, yeah, right? Yeah, Not yeah. Back then, I think the token was like <laughs> 35 cents to ride the train, right? But anyway, doing that was like, I felt like that's not right. Mm. I know better. Mom and dad would kill me <laughs> if they knew they? I was jumping turnstiles and not paying for, you know, a train ride. And we weren't really subway, you know, because there was no place for us to go. Our universe was five square blocks. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't that big. And then it was riding on the back of trains, yeah. in between the cars, mm-hmm. just anything looking for your guys, right? You're looking for some energy, some action. <laughs> and um, I was like, you know what? I moved to the east side of Manhattan from the west side. Right. Still went to the same Catholic school. Yeah. And the guys, I just stopped hanging out with them. It just, just got to a point where I'm like, they're going down a road I can't follow. Absolutely. Because I know this is not going to mm. end well. And this is the 70s. It was a time when I was a kid. we look for a cop like I'm lost. I need to get home. <laughs> it could be lethal now. So to your point, that's why I'm interested in the rascal stuff <laughs> and the possibility to rise above it or just embrace it and know that's just a piece of who you are not it doesn't have to define you and you use do you use those characteristics of the hustle the being able to see around corners to be a better business person use it as an advantage and not have people say well that's a disadvantage you need to sit still how do you take those and make them strengths versus liabilities you are listening to the new note this is where we discuss the life influences that have shaped transformational leaders, how they have walked in the world, and the paths they have taken that have brought them to where they are today and may lead them tomorrow. Well, you know, you, you've, you've just captured that whole issue, character-defining issue. I think you've captured it so well. Cause, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, I get it. I, I resonate with it. I, I feel it. You know, I was a rascal because everyone called me a rascal. Mm-hmm. I was a rascal because I wouldn't accept life on terms that were presented. Mm-hmm. I was a rascal because I believed that until I did it, I wasn't going to accept your interpretation of it. Okay. I was a rascal because Nothing made sense unless I made a mistake and had to learn the why not to do that. So I was a rascal because I pushed the boundaries of normality to learn and that was very risky because you do things or you get into situations where sometimes there's no way out other than a plea bargain Mm. or an escape route. Mm -hmm that has trap doors and barbed wire <laughs> and broken glass mm-hmm. um, or 
as in many cases, I was a rascal in education because I defied logic. There was no way on God's earth Bola, with his background, can succeed at that. Why? Because give society us, us the, said... Because what background are we talking about then? Coming from Hackney, uh, black guy, no real wealth as society defines wealth. And therefore, how can you be outperforming others who have so much more? That's scandalous. You're a rascal for even trying and more to the point succeeding. So to your point about using the street smart, as we call it, to guide, it's stayed with me ever since. It's the reason why I left this office at 1.30 yesterday morning. I had no qualms about walking back to my hotel. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I'm guarded. I'm, 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 I'm alert. I'm awake. Um, and I'm 47 years young now. But that emerged around the 12, 13, 14, 15. And, and like you said so well, I had a group of peers buddies that I believed I couldn't live without but there was an incident that involved cars and money I love cars yeah and my my risks were measured I knew where to draw the line but others didn't and when you see people do things that you know you know when they say quit while you're ahead yeah yeah. But I, I, I got there very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I got there very quickly because I didn't want to jeopardize my academic successes to date. Mm -hmm. These guys didn't have that aspiration to succeed in that way. Mm -hmm. And the minute I realized that we were not on the same track, mm -hmm. I jumped off. Okay. But that willingness to understand mm -hmm. the right time to get out, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm is all about the grounding, the environment, and the knowing. Mm -hmm. Do you call it now? Do you get off? Do you push a little harder? Do you, yeah. you know, that, that is all about instinct. Yeah. And, and my instinct is, is pretty much what guides me, and, and it has done. And I keep saying it, it's, it's such a low-value criteria, mm -hmm. but instinct is everything. Oh, man. Yeah. It's, if you feel it, can't it oh you shouldn't ignore it absolutely and yeah. and it's the instinct from my younger days mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that not only has allowed me to achieve things that others say wow and I really just well okay um, because I dare to go where others assume you shouldn't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and my intellect mm -hmm. is what takes me there yeah I just believe I just know that if I don't, I'm more concerned if I don't act mm -hmm. rather than if I act, what could happen? Yes. Yes. Those regrets. Correct. I don't want a life of regrets. Mm -hmm. What What might have been had I... That's such a sad existence. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the variables are, are infinite. Yeah. The knowns are, if you have a go, that's what happened. <laughs> There's a fixed datum. Right, right. If you don't have a go... 
Right. A thousand things could have happened. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm a doer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know that it's, you know, you take some bullets, and and I think that um, by taking all of those proverbial bullets, yes, I've learned my strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. I've learned definitely where there's opportunity, mm -hmm. and I've begun to realize where the threats are. That's yeah. the whole SWOT analysis sure. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, you're right. All of those instincts and guidelines and experiences as a youngster yeah when you really don't have any care in the world you have no obligations you have no real commitments but you just freestyle with life yes that is supposed to prepare you mm -hmm. for later on when all of those skills yeah. in and outside of the corporate world mm -hmm. come into play yeah and that's what's guided me to where i was when i graduated in 94 mm -hmm. And when I got into the corporate world, yeah. I realized that the corporate world could not fit into me. Mm. Not me fit into the corporate world. Yeah. That was it. Okay. Unpack that. Tell us that revelation that you had. I, I, I actually wanted to ask you about the peer pressure of leaving the, the cohort that you ran with, the other you're, you're the little rascals, <laughs> um, <laughs> and making that decision. There, there was no peer pressure. Okay. No, really. No. The one thing about all of us as youngsters is is we all came from the school of hard knocks. We all had a mutual respect. Mm. If I'm not going, I'm not going. You don't have the right to question me. It's as simple as that. We okay. had that mutual understanding because we were all risk takers mm -hmm. and we all had to respect each other's interpretation of risk. Mm. If it didn't work for you, I'm out. I'm not going anywhere, I'm just sitting this one out. You can have a go if it works, great. If I get left out, that's on me. But there was no peer pressure gotcha. like that, okay. like what exists maybe today. Yeah, yeah. No, we were individual characters that collectively had an agreement and an arrangement and it worked. Mm. Mm. And again, that seems to have lost its way yeah. in society. Yeah. You know, now we are constantly comparing ourselves to others rather than maintaining our individual identity. So that's gone. And I see it clearly. Preach, preach. preach. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's how it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there, there was a time. It's always been hard to be an individual, you know, the... The, you think you're better than us. Correct. You think you're better than me, you know, yeah. and it's that kind of, no, this is my path. That's your path. Exactly. No judgment. Exactly. You know, that's just not for me. Exactly. No. You are listening to The New Note. The New Note is where we discuss how the future isn't what it used to be. So let's jump to the corporate piece. So you're in there, corporate couldn't fit you. Correct. Right. What did you see in corporate that didn't fit you? And what did corporate see in you to say, you know what? We can't fit into him or in their in their minds, probably thinking he doesn't fit our culture. Correct. Yeah. Day one. Mm -hmm. You know, don't forget when I have studied in Wolverhampton at the request of my parents, a hundred mile radius from where I was born and raised. So I left London, went to the University of Wolverhampton in the UK. And, you know, best three years of my life, I studied relentlessly mm. as I had nothing else to do. I trained in the gym, I played football, I cooked, I studied. 
I played in the gym, I played football. I, that was my cycle every day for three years, literally. Yeah, and, and, and for our listeners, real quick, I've had his cooking. The brother can cook. <laughs> That's my, my <laughs> mother takes the credit there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, um, you know, Wolverhampton graduated in 1994. Student of the year, first year. Student of the year, second year. At the, during the middle of the third year, by my uh, professor, my, uh, my uh, course director, right? And this, these are two gentlemen that when they first met me, mm -hmm. they thought I wasn't going to be serious. Because hmm. they took one look at me and said, oh, from London, okay. It's great, because it, 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 it just told me that, you know, they're going to assume they know me, mm -hmm. but in actual fact, they, they're creating the hunger for me to excel. They think I'm here to mess about, but actually I know I'm here to work. Mm -hmm. They've set them the landscape such that it's it's all mine to lose. Mm -hmm. So you can come here to work or you can come here to play. We don't care. Mm -hmm. That became we want you to get the first class honors now. Mm -hmm. It took two and a half years of performance related progress. I'm out maneuvering and outshining everyone, straight A's, 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 because I'm in tune with what I'm studying. So I get to the middle of my third year and they're telling me you have the potential to get a first class honours and be the first black guy to do it. Okay, mm. what do I need to do? Study even harder. Mm. Bring out the innovation. Understand where you can move the boundaries of science. And that's what I did, God willing. And then I graduated in 94. And at the end of 1994, this same company that gave me the Student of the Year prize, I knew where I was going. Okay. So I left. Mm. Now, what were you studying? I studied quantity surveying and construction management. Okay, all right. So it's construction cost management, gotcha. basically. Mm -hmm. So I left the university, I came back to London, mm -hmm. and I worked on site in the summer carrying bricks, <laughs> made some money, got toned up, cleared my debts. November 94, I'm in the office. Wow. First day, mm -hmm. I get there, and uh, I'm in reception for like five, six hours, just waiting. Huh? No one came to receive me. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just giving you a Yeah, 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 yeah. It just dawned on me that uh, either I've come on the wrong day, <laughs> or no one is expecting me to turn up today. And it actually became no one was expecting me to turn up today, other than one man who actually wasn't in the office. Mm -hmm. And when he arrived and saw me in reception, he wasn't impressed that that was my first day. Okay. Unforgettable. Because okay. that really, I'm sitting in reception and I'm observing who's walking in, who's walking out, right. why. And nobody said, no. Can I help you? Why are you sitting here? Well, other than the receptionist, right. who knew why I was here. Okay. Only one man was placed to do that and he wasn't in the office. But when he arrived, okay. he picked me up and carried me through and explained that. It, there may be some challenges for you because you are the first that we've put on this grade for pay and my, my, my commitment and belief in you will be challenged in this office because I think others are aware of your criteria and I took it as put the guard up, mm -hmm. tread carefully yeah, and, and do your thing. Yeah. Right. I just have to interject one thing, you know, I, I smile because our paths, while different, are parallel. <laughs> Me. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I went to work in a firm in Chicago. 
and I was negotiating my salary. And you know, I told my father, he was like, what? They're paying you what? Mm. He said, you're pricing yourself out of the market. So the partner who interviewed me, he said to me, don't tell anybody what we're paying you. Yeah. That was and not that I would have. Coming in there, it was a small firm, 17 people. So when you mention that, they're putting you on a grade, they put you in a band. That's not, I'm assuming, not a starting salary. No, right? this man... He had belief in me. This is, you know, I will forever have an affection for Martin Bishop because he saw the talent in me. You know, yeah. that man saw something. Yeah. And what he, whatever he saw, he tried to translate into an opportunity. But he was one man in a business that has people and he cannot control the minds and actions of those people. Right. And it was the minds and actions of those people that taught me that I wasn't supposed to excel mm -hmm. at what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to coast. Hmm. I was supposed to do what I was told to do and no more. Mm. That I found claustrophobic. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't breathe. Yeah. And it got to the stage where I dreaded going in. Mm. How long did that take? November 94, I started. Okay. December 94, I'm already thinking about leaving. Wow. A month? Uh, to show you how long I was prepared to endure the possibility of change, mm -hmm. it wasn't until March 95 mm -hmm. that I left. And I left because I was given an ultimatum by two other partners. One said leave, one said join us on the same day. Okay, you have to back up. That's not good. <laughs> okay, explain that. I began to realize that there were no other black men in this office. There was one Asian guy. There was one black woman. What was the staff size-ish? This office was probably, I would say, easy, 100 staff. Okay. I'd say 10% of that was back office. The rest was, was surveyors. Mm. Um, but I'm the only black guy in the office. So I have an existence that's unique to me. And you are how old? Uh, 94, 23, 24. Okay. Um, so I'm straight out of university. Mm -hmm. I'm hungry. Yeah, man. I need to act. Yeah. I need to ascend the corporate ladder. Yeah. So I've been told. Yeah. Right. Um, but within three months, I knew that uh, I'm not going to last here. But... I continued to endure on the premise that there was going to be change mm -hmm. that would accommodate my difference. Okay. My difference being, I'm not from a silver spoon family. Right. I'm not from wealthy parts of London. Mm -hmm. I didn't go to a meaningful university. Mm -hmm. My parents are Nigerian and I'm from Hackney, East London. And I happen to have a gold tooth. So I am a stereotype aesthetically, and I just don't fit what you believe is called excellence. Mm, mm. But I'm bloody good at what I do. Yeah. So there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> what do we do about the problem? Right. Do we shackle you, mm. or do we allow you to flourish? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the day I got the two letters, your surplus to requirement, you can join this firm. So two different teams in the same business. So, okay, so that's joining a team. 
Yes. So was this a probation period? No, I'm 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 a, I'm a paid employee. Right. So what do you mean, leave or yeah, join the team? I don't get that. If this was a leave, we don't need you because you're surplus. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. And that's it. But okay. This in this one, yeah, you can join our team. Okay. Right. So, um, <laughs> I, I took both of those letters. Yeah. And I walked home. And the walk, I mean, to walk from, from central London to Hackney, that's a good hour. Yeah. All the way yeah. home with these yeah. two letters. Yeah. One that said, get out, mm. literally. Another one that said, you can come and join us. Mm -hmm. And my view was, I'm leaving. Yeah. But that defined me. Mm. Mm. That was the corporate world in less than a year. Yeah. And I just didn't feel valued. So all of my difference couldn't equate to a tangible existence in the corporate world. Right. According to their terms. Okay. But in actual fact, mm -hmm. the corporate world couldn't fit into me. It filled a very small space and that space was insignificant, which ultimately led to me creating my own business. Mm -hmm. But that's what I went through. And that was after outperforming everybody on my degree for mm -hmm. three years. Mm -hmm. So everything they tell you to do, yeah. go to school, learn the rule, yep. get a good education, yep. graduate, yep. get a good job. Yep. I did without question. And then you get there and the whole model's turned upside down for reasons that are not of your making. So early in your career, mm -hmm. I lost faith in the whole mm -hmm. system. But what I didn't lose faith was of my own dream. Right. Yeah. Because the only real challenge for me mm -hmm. was to meet others mm -hmm. of a like mind who were going through the same thing. Yes. And who were willing yes. to discuss it. Yes. Because we have a tendency yes. to suffer in silence. Yes. Now, like, let's break that down. Who's we? Quantity surveyors? Us as people of color? What's, who's the we? The we at the time mm -hmm. was fellow quantity surveyors. Okay. Because those were the peers I needed to interact with to gotcha. continue to progress in my career. Gotcha. The wider conversation was with my community, my black community. But then I break that community down into compartments. The community that wants to aspire yes. and outperform mm -hmm. versus the community that just wants to exist versus the community that wants to fight the system mm -hmm. versus the community that really just doesn't have any interest in any of that and just wants to excel in all kinds of other stuff that I can't afford to get involved in. So the community itself is fragmented and I need to be able to share my story with all of that community. Yeah. So the coming from Hackney allowed me to be grounded and talk to that group. The outreach, disenfranchised, confused, mm -hmm. some would say antagonistic mm -hmm. players who just continue to bounce between legal and illegal mm -hmm. because that's all they know right. they're not prepared to have this fight mm -hmm. of acceptance and normality to get there and then fall or fail right sure that they see others do yes and ask well why mm -hmm. what was the point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i have to understand that in my journey i still have an obligation to share the how right with those behind me yeah. who were quite likely asking the question, how did you do it? Yeah. 
How did you stay in there? Yeah. Why did you get out so quickly? Yeah. Why did you think you were going to succeed? Right. Why did you think you could do it on your own? Yeah. Why didn't you wait for someone else? Yeah. All this why, <laughs> why, why? Well, actually, half of that I don't have an answer for. Mm. It, it was instinct. I just knew that I wasn't going to survive here. And I knew I wasn't going to thrive. If I can't thrive, I feel claustrophobic. I just I can't breathe. If I can't breathe, I'll die. So when it became apparent that the only way out for me in the corporate world was to accept the offer, and the offer was to get out and redefine that as my only other option, which is to succeed but live life on my own terms. <laughs> the living life on my own terms was the stuff I couldn't work out like that. That was the journey, that is the journey, it remains the journey. But the risk of going from the known to the unknown, that's the instinct, that's the gut, that's the have a go, take a bullet. Yeah. That was all of that, but it was, I didn't have an option. And, I, I, and I'm glad I didn't have the luxury of having the choice. Because I had no choice, I had to go in that direction and I had to accept yeah. because I'd had all of this achievement which was dictating I was going to succeed if I stayed in the corporate world. So the fact that I'm not, does it mean I'm going to fail? No, it means I'm going to succeed in a different way. An ill-defined, uncharted methodology, but in a way that actually has to translate into one thing, success on my terms, yeah. not as defined by the rest of the world. So that transition was wrapped around my family. Okay. My peer group didn't understand, didn't have the patience, didn't have the belief that it was worth it. Some of whom I'm still in communication with. And now it's a constant pat on the back. I don't take the credit. That stays with God. Yeah. That stays with my parents. Yeah. I'm just doing the work yeah. that I've been equipped to do. Right. And I don't get overwhelmed by it. Because I've suffered so much pain, so much rejection, so much derogation, that I'm resilient to pain now. So I just have to do, I have to act. And it's that having to do without having the luxury of a choice that makes it easy. There's only one way to move, and it's forward. Mm. My reverse gear doesn't work. So <laughs> <I have it. laughs> right, right. <laughs> So this is great. So let's take a quick break. And yeah. um, I want to get back to you burning the boats and striking out on your own. We had a break in the podcast talking about Bola's excellent writing skills. You can listen to that short section following the credits at the end of this podcast. So Bola, let's, mm -hmm. let's jump into where we left off and somehow I want to incorporate that. Okay. You're writing stuff in this somewhere, but you burned the boat, you left corporate, yeah. corporate UK or corporate London. Yes. Say corporate America. You decided to strike out on your own. Yes. Um, that journey started at age 24. That's me 26, 27. Sounds about right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm talking about yeah, my own started at 28. And the, the funny thing is with these, these young people we're dealing with that have come out of, of Hampton, yeah. they're starting at 20. 23. Yeah, they're they getting that head, that head start, which is great. Fantastic. So you're 26, 27. Yeah. You strike out on your own. 
do you create urbanists or you what did you do? No, I was I left my final company in nineteen ninety nine. I got qualified on the back of um, building or being part of the Millennium Dome that was built before year two thousand kicked So Luckily, my experience on that project allowed me to become a chartered surveyor, which happened in 1999. And because of my frustrations between 1994 and 99, I was just like, I'm out. I didn't have any clients. I didn't know you needed clients. <laughs> I didn't have a plan. I didn't have anything. I just knew I had to get out. And I was frustrated. I was totally frustrated. So let's ask this question because I know you've been you've been um, you've been a married man for a long time. Got a beautiful family. I enjoyed meeting them when mm -hmm. I was in London. So you walk out, wife and kids, one, one at that time. Yeah. How'd that how'd that conversation go? There was no conversation, and there was no conversation because this is what happened. I left early two thousand, and I said to the wife. I'm going to travel. I need to see some of this world. Most of my lecturers at university had practiced in Abu Dhabi, Qatar, Dubai, Oman, West Africa. And I was heading to the Middle East. I was going to Dubai, Abu Dhabi. And I went there three months. At that time, it wasn't what it is now. It was still largely a massive construction site, heavy infrastructure projects, heavy civils. Everyone was in the ground. So, you know, to their credit, the Arabs spent roughly three to four decades underground, which is why they have so much opulence above ground and vertical. They bought the best mines and they spent their money wisely, black gold, they put their investment in the ground. Don't forget, it was a desert. Yeah. Right, so the reason why it looks the way it is now is because if you took all of that vertical structure, superstructure away, you would see massive piles of concrete wiring, cabling, drainage below ground, which is why that place ticks and it's why it works. Um, hasn't really happened the way it should have been in Africa. But anyway, I went to the Middle East, I saw that I didn't really resonate because I didn't feel I had the ability to be myself and open a business. It just didn't happen for a number of reasons. So I came back to the UK and I did, I did a search on the internet. As clunky as it was <laughs> in 2000. Right. But my search criteria was largest black-owned construction company. H.J. Russell was top of the list in the search engine criteria. And I contacted them. Here in Atlanta. And I came to meet Mr. Russell in August 2000. Fantastic conversation. One major takeaway, I mean, Herman Russell giving me an audience anyway was, I suppose, a big deal. But um, to be asked by him, by Herman, whether I'd come to Atlanta on a one-way ticket, I didn't see that question coming, but I said no. And he said, that's your first mistake. We need your talent here. Yes. And he said it with such conviction that I just felt empowered. It was the lift I needed. It was the simple reference to capability that I needed to hear. And I went back to London, wondering whether or not I should. 
but I went back to London and I started my first company called Accessible Advice, which was which was supposed to specialize in the what you call here ADA. Yes. Accessibility okay. legislation. At, at the time in London it mm. was it was being mandated to become effective two thousand four. So I saw I saw myself as an early adopter in two thousand. Right. Getting ahead of the game, getting qualified and specialised in this space to then be able to offer clients advice on inclusive environments that cater for people with disabilities. And I had an auntie who was in a wheelchair. And as a youngster, growing up around an auntie that I took as a second mother and seeing what she went through, waking up in the morning, moving from bathroom to toilet, moving from toilet to kitchen, moving outside of the house, transportation, all those challenges grew on me so that when I saw the Disability Discrimination Act, as they called it in the UK, coming into existence, I said, right, in her honour, I'm going to specialise in this work because I know what it means. And in the UK, they used to call it a double jeopardy. To be black and with a disability is a double jeopardy. So I specialised in that type of work only to find it never really made a difference because London today is still largely exclusive and dysfunctional and not very accessible because it's so old. Because, it, okay. Yeah, it, you know, I often challenge people. I say, close your eyes and try and get home. Mm. Walk, feel, but just close your eyes. That's the test I give people. They can't leave my office. <laughs> and this is what I'm saying yeah, about how inaccessible the environment is. Yeah. It's stuff we all take for granted until something happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I grew up with an aunt that was in a wheelchair and had all of that. So I was exposed to disability from a very young age. Yeah. And with my love for construction, I end up being a surveyor. I'm always thinking in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. What's the easy way? How can you do this? Why that? Why this? Why that? And so in her honor, I specialized in that. It didn't make a difference. The business failed. Mm. You found that um, people didn't want the service. There wasn't, it was like, we'd love to do this. We know there's a legal requirement. However, I'm sure there were, there were <laughs> loopholes and outs because of age and grandfather clauses and Absolutely. you didn't have to do it if your building you know, all the buildings are a hundred years old so Absolutely. Um, so how's that solved today it's just on the books but it's not except for new construction I would assume new construction it, it's an easy challenge to address mm -hmm. refurbishment mm -hmm. regeneration it's a nice to have wow and I'm being crude by saying that if the numbers just don't warrant the spend, ultimately it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And that's just the harsh reality. Um, you have pockets of excellence and you have champions within and across, but generally it, it, it hasn't made a difference. My, my, the road that my office is on in London, mm -hmm. if I took a photo yeah. in 2000, 
and I took a photo today. Therein lies the issue. Hmm. I saw it what a couple of years ago. So what would what did what did it look like in two thousand? Exactly the same. You are listening to the new note. This is a transfer of knowledge for entrepreneurs and others sharing wisdom to our listeners and where they share their next new note. And that's generally what you're up against. You innovate, you're an early adopter, you're ahead of the curve, you prepare yourself, nothing happens. You need to re- re- reinvigorate and redefine. So I did. So let's go through your new notes. You leave corporate America, you yeah. create this company around disability um, services, Correct. advice, construction. Yeah. That's one new note, so that's gone. Yeah. Now your next new note is what? What did you do after that? Well, to show you how switched on I thought I was then, two years after starting Accessible Advice, not only was it difficult to win work, market yourself, you know, I'm then reminded that there are no other black-led firms of surveyors anyway. (laughs) So not only did I pick a specialist area (laughs) that was emerging and challenging, both on numbers and conscience, but I was one of only two black surveyors in London at that time, independent of the corporate world. So it was even more challenging just to get in the room to have the conversation, to, to attempt to sell the service. Right. So I actually, at that point, 2001, two, um, thought, okay, this isn't happening. I'm going to go back to my first love, construction. And did she take you back? She never left me. (laughs) (laughs) So I I was focusing solely on public sector opportunities, so so local authority, federal, state, as you call it. And um, I was campaigning to, look, I'm here, I'm available to work, give me some work. You're spending X amount every year. I don't see you spending anything with people that look like me. I'm here, I'm a ratepayer. I can add value, I can talk to areas of the community that the status quo cannot. You're saying you want to, I'm saying I'm here, let's join some dots. Don't forget, I've been exposed to what's happening in Atlanta and has happened since Maynard. So I have a completely different outlook. My conversation with Herman Russell, how did you succeed? Largely public sector contracts, right? Or public dollar contracts, as, as some of you call it. His father, he himself built the business essentially by partnering with tier ones and, and primes to win work on the diversity supplier agenda. So I brought that thinking, following my conversation with Mr. Russell, into London. The difference was and is, till today, you had a legislative mandate to make that process work which translates into roughly anything between 25% and 35% minority participation in any one calendar year. Those figures subject to whatever. In London, there is no legislative mandate and there's zero minority participation. 
pure and simple. Now I'm thinking, because I'm ahead of the curve, and I've spoken with Mr. Russell and a number of others, including the uh, Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce, and I'm, I have a business case that makes sense. Absolutely. And I brought it back to London. They weren't ready then, and they're still not ready now in 2018. However, my view was, I'm going to pursue it anyway. Fill the fair and do it anyway. That's my lifestyle. So I create the company in 2003. This is a year before the legislation of disability discrimination kicks in because I've already seen it's not going to happen. So a year prior to that, I've spent 5,000 designing a logo and I've called the company Urbanis. And Urbanis stands for Urban Inclusive Solutions. The I is inclusive, the S is solution. The IS literally addresses the issue about minority participation, hard to reach, diversity, exclusion, becomes inclusion, becomes success for all. Community outreach, as you call it. Yes. Urban, urban inner city areas, deprived, dysfunctional, decrepit, but ripe for gentrification. Construction management. This is what I love doing. Yes. My view was I take the model to the local authority, present the model, they love the model, great, we can put this into our program, we need to connect you with our main contractors as they call them, primes as they call them here, and then you need to make it happen. You need to dance and make it happen. Mm -hmm. We danced, and then the music stopped. <laughs> I was still dancing, everybody's gone home. 2003 till 2018, same challenge. So with that reality, you're dancing to the music, there's no dance partner, nobody wants to come dance with you. Mm. What does that look like? What does that do to your spirit going from those two letters you got at your original corporate firm yep. to now being out here hunting because yes. you're a hunter and you've got, there's plenty of big game out there. Yep. You see it. You're like, I just got to take down one of them. Correct. You're asking for a partner with some tools or bigger bigger guns, bigger, bigger whatever. And they're like, no, nah, you're kind of on your own. There's some rabbits out there. Go eat those. How do you keep pushing forward? I don't know how to accept negative feedback. I listen, I hear, that's it. Mm -hmm. My view is I don't have the luxury of wondering what it's like to do things, anything other than fight, forward, push, I don't know anything else. I don't understand how not to push forward. I don't understand how to stop. I don't understand how to accept someone says, you can't do it. I don't know how to accept that. So at a very basic level, my love for my family, my commitment to my family is unquestionable. It's easy. Yeah. I look at my kids on a daily basis, the answer's there. Do what you do, Dad, and do it well. Do what you do and do it well. My dad always said, anything worth doing at all is worth doing well. My mom, she just smiles. Pain, happiness, and everything in between, she smiles. So my, my environment is small. The recipients of my effort 
technically are small in number. Direct recipients. The indirect recipients are wide. That's the reaching out. That's the giving back. That's the talking to. That's the helping out. That is sometimes overwhelming. Because people look in and say, hold on a minute. Go to Bola. Have a chat. You know, I get all this third party referral request. And it's all pro bono. Stuff that doesn't pay. Money. But it pays dividends in other ways. Yes. So, as you know, you're a scholar. Um, but again, I don't have the luxury of deciding what else to do other than what has to be done. There's no choice. And I'm glad I don't have the luxury because I don't have to waste the time thinking <laughs> about what that could mean. Yeah. My life is very simple. I have to create an opportunity and I know it's not going to be straightforward, but I know that before I start, I don't hope I don't find out along the way. I know there is no straight path because I've had 18 years of pain and suffering and undermined suspicion on are you really trying to do this? Do you really think you're going to succeed? And what gives you the right to even try? All of that is normal. I'm more inclined to draw caution when someone says, I'm going to back you. I can see where you're going. Really? All of a sudden I'm like, can you really see this as well? Yeah. And do you really think you can walk the same track together? Yeah. That brings an alarm bell to me because that's not normal. That says we're going to possibly assist you. We're definitely interested in what you've got to say or do. And I think we might be able to benefit by sticking close to you. That's different. That is a recent decade-long phenomenon. Because prior to that, it was, no, you're going to burn and crash. Mm. You're going to fail, but you just don't know when. You're going to have to give up because you have no idea what you're getting into. That's normal. But that drives me. Because that's someone else assuming they know me better than I know me. And no one does. Yeah. Right, so, and we get conditioned into thinking that narrative is helpful. Well, it is. But it's also unhelpful. And it's helpful to me because I just don't accept it. But it's helpful to others because it, it either limits their dream, kills their dream, and allows them to help someone else's dream manifest because they become a body in that person's dream machine. But I had a very early exposure to difference. And, and I use the word difference because it was because of my difference and differences that I began to have very little choice in what I could end up doing. So leaving corporate with no clients, no idea, no plan, made sense then because there was no other choice. Yes. Worst decision you could make in that transition, in that way. But when you have no choice, it becomes a sensible decision because you have to make it work. So I'm constantly throwing everything negative into a positive because there is no other way to look at that situation. As bad as it can get, you've got to see the positive in it and you've got to take that, finesse it, refine it, 
and hopefully monetize it and then you move forward. That's great stuff for people listening to this, particularly those who think about starting a company, you know, that pain threshold. <laughs> you know, right. you, you've got to have a tolerance for mm-hmm. pain and definitely going months without income, depending on what you do. Some people fall into this work. Things go great and there will be rises and falls. You have those lean times and those those absolutely great times and you have to accept them both, right? Yeah. The following section of this podcast is a conversation with Bola. In early 2016, he brought 13 young black men from the UK with special challenges along with three chaperones to Atlanta for six days. The Institute for Local Innovations worked with BOLA to coordinate the travel and subsequent site visits and conversations in offices and breaking bread with leading African-American businessmen and other entrepreneurs across various sectors. They included Shadid Abdul Salam, Morehouse College, Bill Allen, Allen Entrepreneurial Institute, Chris Burke, Georgia Institute of Technology, Kwaku Forstall, NEE Casey Foundation Civic Site, Todd Green, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, David Gibbs, Sam Goode, Goode & Associates, Milano Harden, The Genius Group, Bunmi Janadu, Derek Kayungo, Center for Civil and Human Rights, Dwayne Marshall, Southeastern Council of Foundations, Atiba Mbiwan, the Zeiss Foundation, Egbert Perry, the Integral Group, Don Roman Sr., Rashid Nouri, Truly Living Well, Luis Enrique Negron, Hope, Ronald Scheffler, Nathaniel Smith, Partnership for Southern Equity, and Dan Witherspoon. Special thanks to the following. Ms. Ivy Allen with a generous grant from the Foundation for the Mid-South, making it possible to include half a dozen young black men from the Shreveport Jobs Corps, along with Mr. Victor Hill, to travel to Atlanta as part of the joint UK-US exposure tour. The staff at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta and South Face Energy Institute for the use of their space. Ms. Hattie Dorsey, founder and former president of the Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership for inviting all of these young men and others into her home for an extensive conversation about her inspirational journey and pearls of wisdom. And last but not least, Nicholas Hu of Neo Media Group for taking video and photos of this journey during time at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. I wanna talk about when you brought the young men here from Hackney, from London. Yeah, and while it's a struggle, yeah, in this entrepreneurial world, particularly for those of us of color, you managed to do something phenomenal. Let's talk about that—the impetus behind that, mm. the experiences you wanted them to have. Yeah, you know, following in your journey, and maybe yeah. you know where some of them are today. I'd been talking to two charities, local charities in Hackney, about the problems with young black men in Hackney and they came to me for one reason, I'm a local businessman and there aren't many of me, A in Hackney and B generally, but specifically born and raised in Hackney with a business in Hackney, that was rare. And I'm totally committed to, to young people. It just so happens that statistically young black men have fared worse than any other young group in London. 
particularly in Hackney. So I stepped up as a contributor. I sat in on many meetings, I listened, I talked, I conversed, I shared my story. And I think it was after I began to share my story that they realized I came from Hackney, grew up in Hackney. The light bulb moment happened for them and it was much more of a rapport about, well, if you've done it, then do you think there's hope for us? Well, that's a long conversation because a lot of things need to be understood and unpicked. But we got to the last meeting and one of the young men, knowing that this was the last meeting planned, said, well, what happens from here? Great question. And there was a very awkward silence in the room. <laughs> and I just spontaneously said, well, I'll take a group of you to Atlanta to show you what um, I've been building over the last at that time, 16 years. And then there was a deafening silence in the room, as though, I think everyone was in shock. And it wasn't until I left the room that I realized what I just said. <laughs> and my concern wasn't about making it happen. My concern was about everyone in the room accepting the genuine offer behind it and the why. So I explained the why. And I literally said that, we have a common denominator, or we have a common denominator. Because when I was your age, society said no to everything. And unlike you, I didn't have the pressures of social media and all this other stuff that has added to your pain. And when I was your age, I knew that there was more to life than hackney. Give us the ages of these guys at the time again. The age group was 16 to 25, um, all walks of background, all different types, some in school, some outside of school, on the street, ex-gang, undergrad, but all suffering the same pain as young black men. Society says no. So my view was, I first went to Atlanta, mid to late 20s, I had an amazing experience. My eyes were opened to the opportunity, open to the possibility, open to success that was tangible and my view was why don't you just come and see why don't you just come and see a different perspective on life and it was that innocent but yet that innocence became misinterpreted and interpreted by all kinds of people for all different reasons but the bottom line was in the end some of the guys couldn't travel because of their background. So the US would not allow them in because of the mistakes that had been made. That in itself was a learning curve for many in the room. Yeah. Can't even get into the country. Could they leave? They, they just could couldn't leave. come here. They just couldn't come in wow. to the US. Wow. So we ended up bringing 13, including my son, on a six-day trip that largely, as you can see from the testimonials, had an impact. A life-changing impact. I know that all of them are no longer the same. They are driven in different ways. I think three or four of them are out of the UK now. I think they're in the Middle East and I think um, one is in Africa. The others are in London but they're excelling. They're just not accepting life as they knew it. Yeah. Which was the whole idea. So I think they still haven't, not all of them have found their purpose, not all of them have found themselves, but they, they're just not accepting what life had to offer. As of February 2016, they came, they went back, 
as they keep telling me, they will never forget and they want to give back and they want to reach back and that was the whole idea because the only thing I ask them is that they share the experience with others and inspire others and that's what they're doing. It's becoming a way of life now. They know that they can achieve more. That's the success for me, that they know that it's up to them, not up to society to dictate how far they can go. That's the big secret yeah. that came out in the end. You know, and they, they surprise themselves. I mean, I, I look at them and I think, well, it's a, it's a shame it took for me to do that because now that everyone can see what happened, a lot of people were convinced it would fail that they would come here, they'd run a mock, run riot, get into trouble. Yeah, everyone, you name it, had their own agenda. And I say everyone as in the establishment. I said to them before they left, I said, you're not representing me. You're representing yourself. Just understand that, if nothing else. And you're coming, and I'm hopefully going to expose you to people, including Vaughn, Egbert Perry, all of those guys, people that you can only read about. And they didn't believe until they got here. They were in disbelief until the plane landed, Hartsville, Jackson, and they got out and it dropped. We're here. You know, so, I mean, for me, it, it was the most humbling thing I've ever done in my career. And the legacy of that is. I know the power of giving. I know the power of listening. And all they needed was someone to listen. No more. Just listen to what they have to say. And they all had something to say. They just never had the opportunity to share it. And they shared it in Atlanta. They have never shared it amongst themselves. I mean, it was, you know, it was moving, it was, life-changing clearly and that was two years ago yeah yeah time has <laughs> flown and and you know i want to thank you for involving me in that process those guys were great you were the architect yeah. you were the architect yeah i appreciate that um it is inspiring seeing the next gen generation would love to replicate that on a regular basis <laughs> but so we didn't even talk about this you know all those things sound great you're an entrepreneur business owner that wasn't grant funded you came out of pocket yep you brought 13 plus yep. you yep out of pocket entrepreneur what did you spend on that ish close to 30 30k US yeah no sterling sterling so yeah. that's what in that's about I'm currently about 40 42 maybe 42 G's Altogether, yeah. 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 So it's that kind of commitment. And those are the things I think, how do I put it? Some people may not appreciate the depth of what we, you, those of us in this space, are willing to put out of our resources now, two years ago, because I came to visit you in London that April. That's right, yeah. And you know, met your beautiful family, and um, you got you got you know, got some mouths to feed, man. <laughs> you know, that's why I'm driven. Yeah, <laughs> that's um, why I don't have the luxury of failure. Yeah, beautiful wife, beautiful kids, four of them at, at home that I met, and then your older son that came here. Mm -hmm. 
um, yeah, knowing how hard this is in this entrepreneurial space, and like you said, just giving up is not an option. Yes. When so many people say, well, wouldn't it just be easier to go get a job, get that steady paycheck every two weeks? And um, if, well, one, you have to assume there's, it's out there and somebody would want to do it, right? Like you said, it's not even an option, right? It's not even on the table. I, I'm sure you get it. I'm sure you've heard it. That person who's listening to this and is like, God, I want to, but I'm scared. You know, my health benefits, my vacation, my, you know, whatever they think, my 401k or whatever the equivalent is. Yeah. Um, I just, I'm scared. Yeah. I'm scared. Uh, what, what, what's the, what do you say? You know, Vaughn, I, I get that every day. You know, in actual fact, I could I could probably say to you right now, given the challenges we currently have in business in the UK, with Brexit on the way, clients getting cold feet, not a lot is happening in the UK. Every day I am reminded that if all else fails, you can always go and get a job. I'm reminded by that. I'm reminded that it's an option for others. I left the corporate world in 99 with a view that the corporate world didn't fit into me not the other way around and it still doesn't I'm deconstructing the myth behind what it means to be in the corporate world for those in the corporate world that want to get out but what I have to show is that the risk is worth it the risk being worth it equates to success now I'm not driven by achieving success only in London, it's global. So being in Atlanta is another opportunity to redefine what success looks like. The job, what are they gonna pay me? What is my worth? That's the biggest conversation and probably the biggest insult I could ever give myself if I attempt to value what I'm worth to a business now. It's obscene. <laughs> right. I couldn't get that number right, and I'm a quantity surveyor, so I'm not even <laughs> going to go there. Yeah, I've heard all kinds of numbers thrown out there. Um, and it's not about the number. As I said to you before, I'm a 110% man. I'm going to give you heart and soul daily. Yeah. Because that's all I know. And if I'm going to do that for a company that may or may not understand me, may or may not value me, has the right to change their mind, has the right to dispense of me, has the overarching commitment to themselves and not me. What am I really worth? Well said. It's the fact, I've been there in 1999. The school of hard knocks slapped me in the face with those two letters. And I thought, well, if it can come to this for nothing, I'm not even firing, I'm not even qualifying, and I feel the threat, I need to go. I'm not going to be, no. The best revenge is massive success. That's all I know. And I will go as far as I have to, to achieve it. Door to door, 10 hours, London to Atlanta. <laughs> I can drive, I can sit in traffic, I can waste time in 10 hours. 
but I've used 20 on a round trip to make amazing things happen over here. But with the technology we have, point of presence is becoming less relevant. So I'm not concerned about whether it's Lagos, Nigeria, South Africa, Ethiopia. I'm not concerned about where it happens. It just has to happen and be sustainable. And excellence. Without without question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is powerful. We've pretty much covered a lot of ground here. Thinking about your next new note, we hit 47. Interesting times. Very. 50 will be here in a heartbeat. God willing. Yeah, God willing. As you move forward in this space, you've got this relationship with Georgia Institute of Technology. Yes. We'll be doing whatever we do. And that's, I think, part of the beauty of this whole entrepreneurial world we walk in <laughs> is you know something's going to happen. You don't know what it is necessarily, exactly. but you don't have to, no, no, no insult. We don't have to quantify it that's right. today because we just know it's coming. Correct. What would you say, what advice might you give somebody who, because we've got two different things going on here in terms of entrepreneurship yeah. in our new notes, right? And you've brought them both up. One is the person who experiences what you've experienced in that corporate space, mm. devalued, undervalued, and knows that they don't belong here or the there doesn't belong in them. Correct, yeah. And then you've got the startup that didn't even want to go into that space <laughs> yes. for whatever reason, right? Yep. Yep. Two different motivations. One is I'm jumping out, but I'm scared, maybe. The other is I don't even want to go there because I've just got these visions of making whatever I do better, faster, stronger, what the future may hold. And mm. some of those lessons in these new notes that you start out in one place in life. Yes. It's not linear, <laughs> right? Absolutely. For me, architecture, license, practice, education, all of that is 10% of my life, maybe. Right. And it fluctuates now. I'm kind of back in it. Of course. But you couldn't tell me in 86 when I came out <laughs> that I would be doing the things that I've been doing. Yes. Right. Yeah. NASA and other things. What, what would you say in your experience, your folks back home in London, mm -hmm. anywhere in the world here in the U.S., what you've learned? Next new note. What's the takeaway in terms of the, the dream, the path, the walk? What do I do if I'm a 20-year-old, want to be an entrepreneur? If I'm a 30-year-old, I'm tired of this corporate thing. I can't do it anymore. Number one, that is a great question, you know, because it's filled with all kinds of feelings and emotions, even before I begin to think about how to answer it. Yeah. What I would say is I left the corporate world and I believed I was going to build a multi-million pound business within 10 years. Nowhere near that. The vision's still alive. I had to re-strategize, redefine myself, and understand that the vision must stay intact. So the fear of not knowing, the fear of not doing, cripples many people, but it built me. I built myself on the fear. Feel the fear and do it anyway. It became a way of life. So those that think they're not sure, I say stay where you are. Don't go into the unknown 
because then your 50 is 50, your 25, 25. You need to be bouncing between 80 and 100% surety. If you're on a 50, 50 on the word go, you're gonna go in the other direction too quickly. And I say to people, don't chase the money. Find your purpose, find your passion, because on those dark days, that's the only thing that's gonna keep you going. Those days when the invoices don't go out, they go out, they get sat on, they get lost, clients go bankrupt, they go bust on you, you've got bills that keep coming every time of the month at the same time of the month and you get caught, you panic, you have to hustle professionally, you need to be realistic but you need to still pay those bills. If you're going into that zone on a 50-50, you're going to kill yourself with worry. I'm of the opinion that life as an entrepreneur is no more risky than life as an employee. You just have no idea when they're going to say, you're fired. It's the same logic. But for me, I don't have the luxury of the known quantity, which is the employee job scenario. I, I keep saying, I think I'm fortunate now that I don't have the choice. I have to make this work and you have to be of that mentality. You have to know that there is no other option for you. Whether you think there is or there isn't, you have to create an existence where there is no other option and you have to make it work. And everything you believe that could go wrong will go wrong. But you have to move forward. You have to have a contingency. You have to have a plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G running simultaneously. That's not easy, but it's possible. And being a young person isn't easy anyway. Being a young person of color appears to be a lot more challenging now. But it's not just young people that are feeling the pain. People are feeling the pain everywhere for different reasons. But for me personally, the big takeaway in deciding to go ahead and, and not achieving what I thought I should achieve, when I should have achieved it, the question isn't why didn't I do it, the question is what did I do in that interim? So when I say that I haven't yet established in London a multi-million pound business that should be easily ticking over with my eyes closed. It's not because I can't do it. It's because my environment won't allow it to happen. So I've had to change my environment on the premise and on the belief that it can happen elsewhere. Now when you have tangible reference points, yourself one being one of them, that it is possible and you are wired mentally, physically, spiritually to understand that your gift is your gift and it's transferable, then if you can place yourself anywhere in this world, on this planet, in an environment that's conducive to your skill set, that you can monetize the conversation and bring an element of flair, charisma and uniqueness about your offer, you're going to fly. It just may not be in the geographic location you thought it was going to happen. So all things being equal, the world we're living in now, it should be easier to succeed in business. And that's why I would say to young people, don't 
think you can start and have and run a business if you think you have more of a relationship with the why not the fear. You need to divorce the fear, divorce the emotion and have total belief that it can work for the reasons that you know you can deliver. If you start to listen to the third eye, as I call it, and that's everyone that either doesn't believe or thinks you're not going to do it or thinks you're going to fail, that's dangerous. Entrepreneurship is generally a very lonely road because you have to go to places that others aren't prepared to go. That is not optional. You have to learn to love your own space, learn to love your own voice, learn to understand that sometimes it's only your voice you're going to hear. And when you accept that norm, everything else is a bonus. I love it. So the old man told me years ago, <laughs> he said, there's no reason, I guess I was in my 30s. He said, you know, there's no reason you shouldn't have hit a million dollars by the time you're 40. <laughs> Way past 40, dude. Way past 40. Um, the other thing he told me, he said, son, never limit yourself to the United States. You can make money anywhere in the world. Absolutely. Right. And just listening to you mm. about geography, what I was hearing in there was also networks and having a nurturing environment. I'm thinking back to that the movie with um, Morgan right. Freeman, Scarlett yeah. Johansson, Lucy, mm -hmm. when he was t lecturing in the class and he was talking about cells mm -hmm. and a nurturing environment. Yes. This is your host, Vaughn Nkosi, and you've been listening to The New Note. If you like what you've heard, please follow us on iTunes and please remember to rate the show. You can also find us on social media. Search for us under New Note or Next New Note, depending on your social media platform. When you see the jazzy saxophone watercolor logo, that's us. Initially, when you were saying that, I was thinking about people who would say, well, you want people to give you something, right? You got to go take it. You got to make it where they themselves are given something through privilege, mm. access, relationships, networks. Nobody does this stuff on their own. Correct. The reality for us is similar. When you talked earlier about the look on the face of you know the firm, <laughs> I know that look. I'm having cognitive dissonance here. Correct. Because you're not even supposed to be in the room. Absolutely. I right. can't I can't reconcile what my eyes are seeing and what I'm hearing. Correct. Yeah. yeah. All day long. All day long. Right? And so I know the look. I mean, I, I, I know it. it. It's constant. So with that reality, and like you said, business should be easier now since it's easier to go global. Like you, you hopped on a plane, you're here in 10 hours, yeah. right? So why can't we do business? The argument, right? The mm -hmm. young person who's thinking, mm -hmm. do I need to be in the United States? Do I need to be in my home city where I grew up? If that field is crowded, you need to saddle up, go. And don't even hesitate, in my opinion. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why the millennials are less inclined to travel for the reasons we see it is because they travel virtually everywhere. Good point. They're in Dubai. <laughs> They're in London. Yeah. They're VR, AR, PlayStation, Xbox. They're there. They're just not moving physically. The world is coming to them. When we're conditioned, we have to go and see the world. 
So I'm now educating clients, ironically, as yeah. I keep telling you, that my physical presence should become less relevant yes. in the work that we do. We use the tools of technology to live that virtual world, to create that business. And I am here to press the flesh and have lunch with you when I decide to come here, rather than as a necessity to do business. It's a completely different model. And that is becoming rampant, and I'm seeing it. And, I, and what I want to do is, is almost demand that the millennials travel for the experience of the worldly vision that they can't get in a virtual manner. And that is inseparable. It's just not possible. I don't care how virtual immersive. or augmented or immersive it can be, it will never be the same. And then it's optional to travel. But right now, as we have done, we've traveled because we've had to travel for business, not because it was a nice idea or we thought we'd just go and do lunch. It's a necessity. That's shifting and it's refreshing. Um, and I am playing to my strengths with that because I can do my work and the team I want to work with, they can be anywhere. I'm only interested in the output. But you can be Bucharest, Russia, India, South Africa, Australia, Mexico, London. We can talk, we can work, and we can get paid. They know that, but they're just using it differently. So yeah, let me let me shift my words, right? In terms of the point is your clients yes. can be anywhere in the world. Correct. Right. So they don't physically have to be there. Good point. So, you know, I like what you said about, because I think about, you know, our platform, my reality, and um, I never met my coders. There you go. I spent $275,000 on them. <laughs> I've never met them. They're in Europe. You're in Europe, yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, spoke on the phone, did a couple Skypes, yeah. and built everything. You just don't need to be there. Exactly. Anymore, right. right? And you get stuff done. Absolutely. And that's the point, right? What's next for Bola? What's next for Urban Is? What's your next new note in this space? You've already covered a couple few. I want to create a company that is as innovative as I want to be. Is as creative as I know it needs to be and is as impactful as I know it will be. And that will be largely based on my natural skill set, which is to, from my financial premise, deconstruct risk management in construction. The bottom line is there are pinch points of pain there are inefficient methods of doing things. I cannot build in two dimensions anymore. I'm in five, six, seven dimensions. I'm probably 20 years ahead of myself as I was 25 years ago. <laughs> but the world is slowly catching up. And I know that with the disruption coming to my profession, I would sooner be in an environment that accepts innovation rather than pushes against it. Yes. And those environments are rare, although the US is one of them. 
five, ten years from now, who knows? But in the next 12 to 18 months, I must see a significant shift in A, the amount of business we're doing in the US versus the amount of business we're doing in the UK. And with the whole Georgia Tech piece, which is the real excitement, I suppose, I'm tinkering with science and my profession at the same time. So I know that there will be changes to how I do what I do as a professional, which means how things get done principally across the rest of the world, more so in Europe, typically in London and the UK. But I can't be held responsible for those in and around my profession who refuse to accept the reality. And the reality is, things are changing exponentially. And I don't have a hangout with history. <laughs> I'm a new school. I'm a city boy. I'm a disruptor. I just don't want to slap you in the face while I'm doing it. I'm a man that believes, if you can't see what I see, I need to build it for you. Okay? I'm not going to convince you. I don't have that right. You have the right not to understand. You also have the right not to act. You also have the right to remain in denial. But you don't have the right to tell me I can't innovate and move forward. That's my approach. Yeah. And thinking about the, the financial mechanism mm. and finding that benefactor. You know, I think about Steve Jobs when he left Apple or Apple left him. Yes. Right? And he went to Ross Perot. Mm to back him, I forgot how many millions, um, four million, whatever the math was, to start next. Yeah. Thinking about that benefactor, that one, two, five, ten visionary, they yes. say, you know what? I have no idea where you're going, but I see something. Yes. We're going to put money in the bank. Let us know in six months, a year, kind of how it's going. Yeah. Right? Because we know it's going someplace. We can't lose. Correct. Most stuff, most of that we hear is in the movies. Correct. <laughs> right. You know, you talk about the benefactor. Yeah. Um, it, look, one, it happened. Mm -hmm. I ended up in Georgia Tech's office yeah. asking them, where, where can I get the talent to help me grow the business? They listened for less than an hour and they saw the vision. Right. So it's down to the individual. If you know yourself and your subject matter that well, you will sell snow to the Eskimo. There's no doubt about it. It's, it's you. You know, people don't buy businesses. People buy people. That's right. Yep. You know, the, the interest I've sparked this week with the design community, it's not because they didn't see it before. Yeah. Or they didn't know that there was any. Because my interpretation of the solution is conducive to their requirement. That's business. Yes. Pain I, point. I know the pain you're suffering. Mm -hmm. And I have the antidote. Yep. Yeah. It has a price. Yeah. You need to think about whether you're prepared to pay. That's right. The antidote isn't going. If anything, I'm working <laughs> on another one. <laughs> right, right. But it's me. Yes. And it's mine. Yes. And that's why they call it intellectual property. property. Sure. Yeah. And we just need to salvage our IP. Yes. 
in a way that we can monetize it. Yes. Tangible and intangible. So everyone can do it. I am absolutely convinced everybody has at least one business in them. And it's called me. Yes. And if you can sell me, yeah. I'll buy you. Yeah. It doesn't matter how talented you are, people have to like you. Fact. There was no question. I didn't get that until I was about 35. Because it was like talent, skill, I'm good at what I do, blah, blah, blah. The world, will, you hang out your shingle, the world will come, right? Uh, we know better than that. But that's the, I think, one big element that people don't understand. They think it's about talent, skill, fastest widget, and it's just not that you know, necessary. I don't disagree at all. The likability... But the ability to um, to deliver and follow through is equally important. Yeah. I am into building relationships. That is something that I've never taken for granted. But it's always something that I'm only prepared to do in reciprocity. So if you are prepared to build a relationship, I will. But if you're not, and I'll work it out very quickly, I'm off. Yeah. I don't care how much money you leave on the table. Not interested. Yeah. I'm never chasing the money. Yeah. If I can't work with your psyche, I'm not interested in your money. You know, this has been great. Um, it's been absolutely refreshing. Yeah. I mean, it's allowed me to just have a conversation with a great man. Yeah, well, absolutely. Man, appreciate <laughs> you. Appreciate but you. But I'm We're, serious. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not done, but we yeah. don't talk. We yeah. don't have the conversations. Yeah. You know, the pain we go through, we carry it. Yeah. Additional load. It's another bag. Yeah. You know, life is short. Yeah. Very short. Mm. This this life is hard. You know, it it, dest it destroys relationships. It, it destroys lives. It builds. It does all of that. It does it all. And um, like I like what you said earlier about all the different plans you have, and whatever you think will go wrong will go wrong. And then some. <laughs> and then some. And you've got to be prepared for that. Any last parting words for that? would be entrepreneur yes one last word love yourself and don't give a damn about anybody else loving you back i love it yeah i appreciate that man <laughs> <laughs> all right it's been great man man okay. that was needed yeah absolutely needed. the new note is a product of the institute for local innovations based in new orleans please visit the institute on the web at ili360.org and consider becoming a patron. Your support will go towards the production of the podcast. As an ILI patron, you will have access to special content, including advance notice and access to future podcast episodes. Lastly, I'll leave you with this question. What is your new note? Thank you for joining us. First of all, I'm, I'm a man that's conscious of what I put on paper. Because, you know, being a child of surveyor, everything we do and write is, it has to be excellent. It has to be almost word perfect. It has to be based on the facts. It has to be coherent. It has to be on point. It has to be professional. Yep. So I take that literally. Everything I write, I write with pride and care, subject to typo, but the intent is there to be. Even if it's just, how are you? Yeah. I want it to be a how are you that can make you smile or a how are you that makes you want to respond. Mm -hmm. But the way I write and the way I was taught to write is that you use the language to communicate feeling. 
more than message. Others do the other way around. They, yes. they communicate message more than feeling. Mm -hmm. Unless mm -hmm. they really want to tell you to. <laughs> but, but, but I've learned to use the English language from a literature background to express feeling and genuity because you know that's what I'm trying to communicate that's why I talk about relationships and trust I give you my best because I think you deserve it until you prove otherwise right and I keep it that simple but yeah you're right you know I, I like to write using the written word I love writing to my mum because she loves receiving communications from me because it's all about sentiment it's all about the love mother Son, all the rest of it, and, and and it's become a part of how I communicate. You know, yeah. I don't see, I don't see the need to just write. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to write and make you feel or think. Because while you're going to spend the time reading, you're going to go through an experience. Yeah. And, yeah. And one of my English teachers, who, who, you know, God bless her soul, um, she had a beautiful way of putting words together. Yes. That you could also reassemble the words yeah. and have a completely different meaning. Mm. And I thought that was powerful. Mm -hmm. Not different words, just reassembled in a different way. Right. A completely different context and meaning all the rest of it. So, again, I've used the language, whether it be business or social, to make a point. And less is more. Yes. Unless I need to articulate in detail. That's another skill, yeah. So, you know, I, I, love, I love writing. Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, I like reading this guy's, his, his, his memo. His, <laughs> you know, I haven't seen a memo that I'm like, wow, I really like this memo. <laughs>